Seltzer Kings Podcasts. What does an 18-year veteran of the tech industry and a 20-year veteran of the military have in common? More than you might think. Welcome everyone to the, the Second, Second Act Podcast. Podcast, leveling up your life's journey. Welcome back. Hey, Michael, how you doing, man? John, I am feeling so great these days, and I, I got to tell you why. Like, what what an amazing five months it's been since we launched our first couple of episodes. Yeah, we built we built a great product. Like from a conversation, our product is the conversation, and it's getting traction. And we started sharing our story with our audience. And then we connected with guests and have them share their second act yeah. stories. Now we're releasing our episodes on YouTube and there's so much more coming this year. Uh, and to top it off, the byproduct of the effort that you and Jeremy and us as a group have put into this have led to us breaking into the top 5% of all podcasts globally. Yeah. So something I think we should be we should be proud of as a milestone. Damn. We're we're in thirteen different countries and counting Damn. now. That's awesome. So it's it's an awesome feeling, and we we started at zero, uh, and here we are. Yeah. Well, let me just um, highlight for a second. Let me talk about that achievement, and I will say that we wouldn't be there if this was my podcast. I think if it was just your podcast, if Jeremy was just doing it as a production. We wouldn't be there individually. It's definitely been a collective effort. Your yep. abilities to to run this with such technological expertise and and measure out uh, the metrics that we're using, the 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 flow charts and the flow that we have to get our guests on. Man, that is all you. And you know, I like to think that my expertise is execution and taking those next next steps. But man, I wouldn't be here without you guys. And, and I don't think we'd be here collectively with with if we had a missing piece. So it just highlights how important the team is and how important it is to find your weaknesses and bring those people in to help make you stronger. Fill those gaps. So Yeah. Man, congrats on five percent, top five percent. That's pretty awesome. And yeah, it's the power of a symbiotic relationship yeah. for sure. And and this week is going to be no different. I mean, we're no. we're going international <laughs> with our guests, so <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> exciting. So, uh, what? Yeah. Why don't you introduce our first international guest? Absolutely. Well, first to our audience, welcome back to the Second Act Podcast with Michael and John. Yeah. And this week we are super super excited to be going international, like John said, with a special guest based in Berlin, Germany, where we'll, uh, which we'll get into in, in uh, right now. So in this episode, we are joined by Morella Moose, who grew up in Romania and moved to Berlin, Germany in 2015 with a lifelong dream to start a company. Wow. Morella is the founder and CPO of Product People, the premier destination for product management in Europe with a dual mission, 
Uh, first, in helping companies discover and deliver great products faster. And uh, second, to empower the product management community to share knowledge generously. Marilla has earned the prestigious top product management voice distinction on LinkedIn. Congratulations. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's also thanks to the team as, as they, they always push me to do more. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome, awesome. And is also a Techstars mentor. And for those who are unfamiliar with Techstars, that is one of the premier accelerator incubator um, groups in the world for early stage tech startups, uh, where she showcases her expertise in product management and product leadership functions from organizations that include Zalando, Amio, DeepL, and the World Health Organization. Wow. In fact, Morella just got back from some exciting product events in Amsterdam where she and her team were showcasing their expertise, so we are looking forward to hearing more about how that went. Uh, but outside of work, Morella enjoys hiking, reading sci-fi novels like the Culture series. I looked that up. It looks pretty interesting, Morella. And playing board games and painting. So welcome to the show, Morella. Yeah, welcome. Very excited to be here. So... Are we are we ready to jump into it, John? Yeah, I think so. I've I've already got a ton of questions um, ready okay. to ask Morella. So, Morella, buckle up. I think it's going to come go. fast well. and furious. Um, <laughs> I look forward to hearing more about your story. But we always like to Morella take our listeners through uh, the life journey by starting from the beginning. So I understand you grew up in Romania, eventually moved to Berlin, and established. Um, as an established professional. So tell me and tell our listeners about life in Romania and what some of the more important events were in your childhood years that helped shape who you are today. Cool. I, I was very excited to see this question as <laughs> it, it made me think uh, back a lot. So I grew up with my grandparents and uh, a part of it was during communism uh, before 1989, and they were teachers in the countryside, and that was a big thing back then because uh, intellectuals weren't liked. Uh, so if you can remember, the communist doctrine was uh, workers good, um, any capitalist or intellectuals bad. So, so they were going against the established norms back then, by, yeah. by simply being teachers, uh, which sounds ridiculous right now. Um, but I reflected how strong of a position that was only afterwards, because now it sounds very trite. Another part was back then you have an immense access to goods. So you had to figure things out uh, on your own. Hmm. They needed to grow most of the things at home. Uh, you needed to queue to get bread. Right now you queue for the iPhone and it's cool. But back then, no one liked it. And... One of the hypotheses is why communists became also so disliked is that they were censoring a lot of the um, conversations and media, but people were still meeting up at these queues day in and out. So, so that enabled a lot of gossip to spread, uh, a lot of sarcastic jokes, and, and it undermined the narrative quite a lot by just letting people stay frustrated in these queues all day. And uh, now you Amazon Prime something in two hours, right? But back then, they, they yeah, you needed yep. to grow the chicken, right? And um, plant the tomatoes and all, all of that. And I remember either 
given tasks or witnessing more complex chores as a kid, which I look uh, back now with, with a lot of melancholia and gratefulness. Back then I didn't like it because it was like, okay, you need to do this. You're the elder child. You need to take more responsibility. It's like, no, I, I just want to eat sweets and <laughs> <laughs> do something else. But I, I think it uh, shaped me in a more organized manner and it also gave me some resilience and that that I'm very grateful for my grandparents for providing for me because I I just see uh, how important that was and how much work everything took back then. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for uh, taking me down memory lane. <laughs> yeah. And of course, since they were teachers, they also kept me on top of my homework all the time. Uh, plus uh, having how you have in, in the American media, more like the Asian parent stereotype. So that was a bit in, in my family as well. And, and sometimes it's also like the Jewish mom stereotype. Apparently yeah. that that is very reflective of uh, my Eastern European background. It was um, you have gradings one to ten, ten being maximum. If I would come with a nine at some subjects, they're like, "Why? Where did you get a nine? Like this, this other child whose parents are losers, or I don't know, like some beef my mom had with them. Why, why did they get a ten? And why they? Why? Why are you getting a nine? What did I not do for you to enable this? Uh, so, so there was a, a strong uh, emphasis on education in in my family which I developed a bit of a love-hate relationship with. So in some cases, when I could rebel, I would do the bare minimum at some subjects later down the line. And But but I think it was still very helpful and it did make me more uh, strict ab about delivering value and, and uh, having a certain level of uh, competence in some areas, which of course then, you know, you may tend towards perfectionism. So... Sure. Um, need to fight that a lot, but I think overall it was a very good upbringing and structure, which probably like all children and teenagers and so on, I didn't appreciate at that time. But looking back, I, I felt they did a lot of things right, despite them not having podcasts on how to parent and how to, to yeah. do well by, you know, like physical yep. punishment was a thing back then, right? I was lucky to, to not have that, but like some kids yeah. got beaten up really bad. Because no one told parents what to do. There wasn't this trend or any consideration towards mental health and psychological development and so on, um, at, at least to the knowledge that people had back then. Sure. Morella, your, um, your trip down memory lane uh, with your childhood certainly, I think, helps explain at least a part of your trajectory into product management, having... Uh, grandparents who focused on academics, but living in a world of scarcity of information or knowledge, scarcity of food, you had to get creative about how to provide for yourself and, and your family um, and grow as an individual uh, that led you into the things that you are are doing today. Uh, so it's, it's a really cool story. Um, definitely uh, is in contrast to the things we're familiar with here in the United States and and some of the things that uh, we appreciate and sometimes take for granted as a society uh, that um, hearing stories like this from the other side of the world is 
is important, I think, as yeah. as part of the second act journeys and stories that we tell. Yeah. Cool. And and, and there's more in turn, um, because after Romania got out of communism, it, it did like a complete pivot into unguarded uh, or like capitalism on steroids. <laughs> so it basically got like from one thing to the other and then coming to Germany, it's it's kind of capitalistic, but it has like more socialistic setups, mm-hmm. which you start appreciating after a while because you see people growing old in Romania and they can't live off their pension anymore due to inflation and things that happen and they can't afford private medical service and the public sector cannot intake all the patients they could have so basically you end up with no health coverage although by design you should have some so it's like all, all of these problems but i uh, i think in hindsight it it was good to experiment this shock going from one thing to we hate anything that has any word socialist in it and we go into hardcore capitalism and and then going to germany which seems to be found, to have found like a sort of in-between state mm-hmm, mm-hmm that still works to to a large extent for a larger majority of people. Yeah, there's there's definitely some interesting dynamics uh, in terms of both how the government takes care of societies uh, in Europe uh, versus the U.S., and then also companies take care yep. of employees in the U.S. versus Europe. Um, and I, I don't know if anybody has the perfect model for, for that. We're all... Uh, as societies and organizations trying to learn uh, and evolve into what is the best, um, learn from each other and learn uh, independently. Uh, but uh, it's progress, nevertheless, uh, to where yeah. we are today. A hundred percent. Yeah, there are, there are some things that work better here, some things that work better there. So if, if you go to Berlin, they will all complain about the bureaucracy. If I go to California, <laughs> people are like, oh, Germany is so awesome with the healthcare and and all of that. And it's like, no, 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 you don't know like how a complex is there. You know, you have free healthcare, but like getting free appointments and doing this and that, it's it's not that easy and not everything is covered and la, la, la. So you're right. It's just on, on a superficial level, everything seems better elsewhere. And there's always yeah. like this constant uh, treadmill of <laughs> figuring out the perfect solution and um, that that works to some extent. Yeah, the expression we use here, John, sorry, to, I, no. I know you want to get in. The expression yeah. we use in the States is the grass is not always greener. Um, I don't know if they have that expression. Oh, uh, yeah, 100%. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and uh, people learn that uh, oftentimes the hard way. Something looks beautiful and shiny and they get to the other side and they're like, well, the grass is not greener. The brown spots are just in the different places. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Marilla, I, I just wanted to ask you and kind of before we get too deep into I want to take you back and I don't know if in Romania if there's a push after um, primary school to to go into or secondary school to go into college but I understand you decided that once you graduated you were going to go to a university so one you know talk me through that um that experience. And then when you did decide to go to university, you decided to focus on computer science as your major, but pair that with uh, an MBA. So one, tell me about how you decided to go to, to college and what that, if that was a difficult decision or not, and then, and then walk us through your kind of university experience. 
Sure. So the decision, it it wasn't even an option to not do college. I, at least oh, in okay. my family and where we come from. Uh, yeah. At the same time, it's also paid by the government. Um, okay. So mm. you can do private colleges, but uh, at least back then, the public schools were the better ones and the and the more um, that had the better reputation. And I think that also translates also in Germany. Germany even gives you a visa to study for two, three years. And after that, you can be unemployed or like in a job seeking visa for another one, two years and so on. <laughs> so it's a bit of this model where the state invests in you because then they're going to tax you to death afterwards. Right? So, <laughs> um, yeah. it's, it's, it's not like this part, like in the US where you get a loan and, and then you need to pay back that loan. So I, the, the model is a bit different. And also culturally in my family, um, even my grandparents had higher education, which was not a thing for people born in the 1930s, um, right? Back then you kind of fought in the war and yeah. um, uh, grew cows and there, were, there weren't a lot of these um, opportunities. So, so then my parents were both engineers. They, they were working at a plane factory, oh. uh, which is also how, how they met. So that's a pretty cool story back then. The option to go to university was always there. The, the question was which university. And um, yeah. the, the way you can uh, get into certain universities, I don't know if this is the same in the US, like with the sort of SAT score. So you have yep. a score at the end of high school. And based on that score, you can enlist your interest in certain universities. So I applied and, and got into three of them. And of course, you can't do three in in the same time. And my mom yeah. convinced me to choose computer science. Okay. And the, the reason why I got convinced by her is the mutability of the role. Yeah. Uh, if you if you will become an accountant, then you need to recertify whenever you're moving into a new jurisdiction. I don't know if that's like the same for the US, but if I would have tried to then be an accountant in Germany or in Italy, I have to go to a whole new process again. Whereas yep. uh, with computer science, you don't. And uh, a great example in our family was my uncle Kosti, who ran um, ran off to some degree from, from the country back in communism where they didn't let you immigrate. So to immigrate you would kind of need to renounce your wealth and then they will let you leave with no money, which oh, wasn't oh a great... Um, yes, he was very motivated to leave, so he did that back in the days. And wh one of the things that was very helpful is that he had a tech background. Back then, there were very few people in tech, right? We're talking about the 1980s. So he, he managed to rebuild his life in, in the Netherlands. And my mom was always giving him an example. Hey, you know, if you want to go abroad at some point, it's just going to be easier with this. Look, there's already a career path and you're good at math. So why not go for this? And I'm, I'm happy my mom was very insistent because it did turn out to be a good career path, right? Tech has been growing as a sector ever since. So yeah. I've been lucky to benefit from that. Yeah. And um, it's still underrepresented. So I looked once, we were 2% women in the class and that that uh, percentage hasn't changed much. Maybe now it's it's a bit bigger, but it was still uh, pretty hard back then to 
to get more women into tech. It was like the sharp cutoff. There were a lot of people that were good at math and physics in college, uh, in in high school, but somehow they didn't make it to those colleges, and then they went for uh, for other areas. So, so that was the the background between uh, on choosing computer science. Uh, so, okay. thanks to my mom and my uncle. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is a disproportionate, um, at least in the engineering function or computer science engineering function. There, there's still uh, a disproportionate amount of uh, men versus women in that in that role. But we are uh-huh. seeing a gradual shift. Um, here in the United States, and some of the most talented engineers I know are are women. So that's that's very encouraging, and and I hope the trend continues. Yeah. So, computer science, an MBA on top of that. So you're good at math. Now you're also good at business from an academic perspective. Oh yeah, the MBA came a bit later when I was already working at a cybersecurity company in Bucharest, and okay. that was. Because again, back then there weren't so much career hacking that I was aware of. At least, um, you know, we don't have all these LinkedIn influencers that are trying to sell you a course on how to get promoted. So I felt I was missing something. <laughs> it's true. I was thinking, you know, like why? Why did I ever go to do that? Because in in most cases, you either go for the network or you help you hold to promote into a manager. And my yeah. hope was to promote into a a people manager. Plus, I was relatively new in Bucharest, so I hope that this way I, I could also make a network that's outside of just the people I worked with um, at that cybersecurity company. And some classes were very useful, but that's not what got me promoted. So whenever people ask me, should I do an MBA? My first question is, okay, if if you want to do it for the network, like picking one of the top ones, and then you know you're paying the premium fee. Otherwise, you can learn most of the things online. And... If you want to get promoted, what gets you promoted is the obvious part, right? First, asking for it, and then second, building a promotion case, showcasing that you're already doing some of the parts, mm-hmm. and that the rest of the the missing pieces you can acquire, and, and so on. So it's a bit disappointing for the people selling MBAs, but I, I technically also try to assess why people want to do it, because many, many people come and ask for advice, you know, should I do one? And it's, it's a bit of a time and financial investment. And especially as in many cases, you need to pay for it. Yeah, it's a commitment. And I um, I share a lot of your thoughts around the value of an MBA. I've, I went to Georgia Tech to get my MBA in management and technology. And there's, there's three dimensions to it that I saw um, sort of create the value of the MBA, one is the network, like you said. Georgia yeah. Georgia Tech has a pretty big global reach and a pretty strong alumni network. Uh, the second thing that was really valuable, at least in my experience, Marilla, was um, learning from my peers, people who are at different stages of their professional career that went back um, yep. to learn uh, various aspects of business and business management uh, and how they um, were going to apply that. And we also learned about different industries and their roles in those companies and their functions in those industries. So I thought that was another important dimension. And then thirdly, the academic side, um, you know, learning through the case studies and uh, scenario, uh, like computer scenarios and th- simulations that you had to go through. I would say those three things um, together are what generate some of the value. But 
you still have to apply it. Like you said, you still have to uh, deliver value um, as an individual mm-hmm. and amongst the team for the company to help yep. get you climbing that path to promotion. I agree. Yeah, and I and I don't I don't have an MBA, but the two things that I always tell people are vastly important in your growth is one that network, like Michael was just saying, and then two, learning from the people that are before you and and passing that experience on to 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 somebody else who's following in your footsteps because if you can explain it to somebody you have an in-depth knowledge of of um, what you're doing and so those are those are vital vital points and so i applaud you for getting your mba that's awesome thank you yeah. and and i agree well, well the tip you're sharing uh, john is very valuable so um, we have this thing at product people called the teaching hospital approach which of course it's from the university hospitals yeah. where you have someone show things how to do to usually a university student or just a fresh out person who's trying to be a doctor then they need to do it under supervision and then they later on need to teach it to someone else so doing all this full circle we also apply it for product management because we saw that it works very well and it's easier than to explain because if you just get the information you kind of don't don't have the knowledge of how am I actually doing it but if sure. you're seeing and then doing it under supervision and then you're trying to explain that to someone else yeah then that's how it really sticks and you actually understand what you're doing Absolutely. Uh, so it, it's it's a very valuable advice and I think if there's like one takeaway from this podcast this is probably a very good one so Marilla you you brought up product people and, and I want to make our way there um so you as you build up all this academic knowledge and you start to apply it in the workforce, you bring this excellence, both academically and your product experience, into organizations like Zalando, Omeo, the World Health Organization. Tell us tell us about that product journey and this particular stage in your life and how that started to set you up for for what you're doing now. So got got into product management via a U.S.-based company that was later acquired by Pandora. They were doing um, ad tech and they favored me because I had a tech background. And there's this whole discussion, should the product manager have a tech background? I would say no, but back then a lot of the decisions were also taken in the the Bay Area and it was B2B where in in B2B even now, a a lot of the decisions are made by sales. So it made sense for them to have a junior person that handles more the technical aspects and prioritizes based on deal size and like other more simplistic things. Um, And then later on, I had a few of these product roles, moved to Berlin in 2015, where I also worked as an employee, initially for an Axel Springer company, also somewhat related to Attic, and uh, later on at the managed marketplace for luxury watches, it was Series B. And there I had direct reports. And after that, I started looking into what company I want to build next and understanding what's on the market. And I ended up creating product people. And you mentioned Zalando. Uh, There's a funny story. I was rejected by Zalando when I applied as an employee (laughs) in, I think, 2015, 2016. And then they became one of our clients in 2021. So that... Um, also shows that sometimes you can just get something, but a little bit later, and it's it's not what you're going to expect. Yes, 
there are so many uh, paths that people describe that sort of blow up the conventional sort of wisdom that success is a straight line from point yep. A to point B. It's maybe point A to point A.1 to point A.2 to point A.3 to, to B. Uh, and eventually you, you probably will reach your goal, just not in the way that, that you expected it. And just to bring us back a little bit um, for the audience who are not from the product world like us, Morella, and don't understand some of the terminology. So B2B is business to business in the software yes. world. And then there's also um, some distinctions within the product management function where you can have a technical product manager. So maybe they are uh, have an engineering background, um, but they also have some business acumen and can uh, sort of work through really technical issues. A lot of times they're responsible for uh, some of the back-end product work, things you don't see that make the systems run well. Uh, and then there's the other side of that, which are more the business product managers who maybe come from the go-to-market side of the business or have a business degree um, and are really good at capturing uh, and communicating with um, the end users and some of the business stakeholders and sort of distilling that down into requirements for the engineers and, and technical stakeholders internally. And then in the middle of that, you have the generalist product managers who can sort of span both sides. Uh, they're not yes. super technical, but they can sort of speak uh, the language to an extent uh, on the technical side, and then can also uh, drive things on a, from a business perspective. Yeah, they, they, they come in all shapes and sizes. And yeah. what you said is correct. Sometimes technical acumen is preferred on the API or platform side, uh, but sometimes it's also not needed. So I know of um, a very successful person who had a business background and was a PM at Stripe so his product that didn't have a UI was one of the APIs there and was responsible for the PNL of that whole product. Okay. Because they were interested in the product generating revenue and, and hitting the metrics that they were after rather than this PM going to micromanage the developers. Uh, so it, it depends. It's also a bit of the philosophical side on like <laughs> what, what do you want the product team to do and who should be responsible for what. Um, but I, I think that classical setup was very helpful for me because the the leadership that was in the Bay Area had very little overlap with the Bucharest dev team. So having someone who understands them, but also understands a little bit the developers, also one of the co-founders was uh, very technical. And that's probably he respected other people that were more technical rather than others who didn't understand the jokes they're making or where, where that comes from. So I, yeah. I believe I, I was relatively lucky back then because I, yeah. I got this title that a lot of people fight for and they were doing a lot of things right. And it it, it was a pretty nice plunge because from the cybersecurity company, I wasn't able to transition internally. At most, I got to be the team lead of a QA automation team um, as they were having product management only in uh, Germany, as they saw it as a function that needs to be closer to Western Europe to be in touch with the customer or, or just from the, the way they were set up. So, so that was a great opportunity for me to, to transition into the role. And once you have the title, then it's very easy to go to yeah. the next one and the next one, as I yep. also advise people who ask, like, how do I get into product? Well, now you have this associate product manager paths. 
um, that a lot of companies support. Back then, it was more of these abrupt changes, um, which was also not great to some degree because I had like no one else to learn from in the company and was also in the first time having this very wide scoped uh, role. But, you know, he learned by doing. He yeah. learned by doing. And I, I didn't start in product management myself. I, way back in the early 2000s, I broke into the tech industry. Um, and I've talked about this on the podcast, just sort of happenstance. I was home, I picked up the phone, and the next thing you know, I'm getting an interview at a tech company for this role, which today would be considered more of like a customer success management okay. type of role. Um, we were delivering software and services to insurance companies, and I had to ensure that uh, it was meeting all of their requirements and expectations in that function. And then from there, to your point, like once you're in uh, an organization and if you happen to have the privilege to move into product, you get that product experience and then that's very portable to um, so many so many different uh, other companies. But I didn't yeah, start and, there. And CSM is also a great role to transition into product, especially for, for B2B companies, because you're already talking with the customers, you already understand the product. So, so that's definitely something we also advised uh, a B2B client that had struggled to hire, but had uh, some very motivated people um, in the CS part. I said, why, why not make them an associate? And they, they wouldn't have the challenges that others have where they come in and say, oh, you're not doing product management right. <laughs> and this is, you know, like they, they already know the product. They're already used to the culture. So you're going to have less resistance. And when you want to change some things, you can change some things. That's, of course, yeah. th there were areas of improvement, but there are areas of improvement everywhere. John, John's like, you guys are geeking out over some product <laughs> management stuff in the tech space. What is happening right now? I, I just appreciate you breaking down some of those terms for me because when you say our audience, you're really talking about me. Um, but Marella, I'm gonna, I want to stop for a second <laughs> because where I want to celebrate your uniqueness, right? You're a female in this space. You're excelling in product management development you're in these organizations that are primarily uh, heavily male-dominated. So in that regard, you're very unique. However, the narrative I'm getting from you is not actually unique at all. And that is you're climbing this ladder. You're achieving and succeeding, and your peers are noticing that you're standing out, and you continue to grow in your experience and your knowledge. But at some point, you recognize a, a dissatisfaction with the trajectory of your life. Mm -hmm. And you recognize that there's something more. Mm -hmm. And you decide that the track that you're on is no longer scratching the itch or meeting the needs that you have um, in, in that space or with who you're developing to be personally, what's the moment that caused you to pause and change the direction that you're going on and branch out on your own? It, it was, again, from the good examples that I had also around me. So my, my life partner is a three-time founder. Back then, I think he was a two-time uh, founder. Yeah. And I had this 
history of entrepreneurship in my family. That the uncle I mentioned earlier, that was an inspiration for us. Later, started his own B two B company, which is like business to business. Uh, also in the customer uh, support space. My parents, after communism, were forced to start um, a small business because there weren't any jobs, and they kind of had to do something, and they ended up selling furniture. And so, and and running a, a small um, furniture retail business in their town. So, so I saw that there was possible around me. Uh, I saw that yeah. it also produces a lot of unhappiness. So I think just seeing these examples closer, I had less of a rosy eye feel of, oh, you're going to be a founder and everyone is just going to bow at you and it's going to be so amazing and so on. It's just they don't know like how crushingly lonely and difficult this is. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was actually more of the hesitation. So the the breaking moment was that the the role with the B2B marketplace finished and I was also a bit disappointed by it because I had joined that one as the people running it had previous exits and they were quite well connected in the Berlin space and I said, oh, I'm going to learn something from these people. And I felt like I didn't learn that much more, more of the... Um, Thing they were doing were building something up with a few good numbers, trying to sell it and then move on to the next one and, and the next one, uh, which of course the, the culture ended up not being that great and the business didn't really hold together that well if um, if they weren't there. So I was interested in something that, that has a bit of a better tenure and it also has, you know, when you look from the outside, you feel like, oh, this could be so much better if I would do it. Uh, so seeing how these startups were run, I felt, okay, I can probably also do this or better. So I I was available. Yeah. I, I was interested to do this. And then I started getting prompts from my network of helping them with product work. Oh, one of the earliest was from a, a friend that was early into crypto. Crypto was exploding in 2017. And I just went to, to help there a bit. They also called me project manager because they had like no idea about uh, product management. <laughs> yeah. I was uh -huh. like, fine, if, if you're paying, and we're going to, I, I'm not going to like start arguing over definitions right now. I'm going to see like what's uh, helpful here. Yeah. So uh, later, of course, we focused on more stable clients and um, different type of industries, but that's how it came around. And then seeing this demand come from multiple places, I also looked at the market and you have the large consultancies on one side that are mostly advisory and you end up with a few decks and workshops from them, but not actual work. And then you have the implementation uh, shops that mostly sell developers, sometimes designers, and then they just bloat the org with scrum masters and agile coaches and all these roles that don't really provide an, an impact from from my perspective but that's just a, a separate rant we could have more more time for another time uh, so i felt like none of these large groups of interest that i saw at multiple companies and and the bigger a company gets the more of these vendors is going to have and all flavors yeah. of vendors there was no one focusing on product management because if if you're uh advisory you you can't get too biased on recommending implementation. And if you're doing implementation, you're just going to be incentivized to sell more developers and more overhead. And now, okay, a delivery manager is like, why do you need a delivery manager? Can't the tech lead 
project managed the delivery and, and the people, right? Why, why do you need like a special function for this? And like, why do you need to sell a scrum master? And instead of selling back and the front end developers, maybe the scope is smaller and you can have a full stack developer and so on. But, uh, or maybe you don't need to build anything because it doesn't provide any value. Uh, or you can use a third-party solution. And and these are the decisions that product management would make. And yeah. you wouldn't make that if your salary depends on this development company or some other places. And when I didn't have my own deal flow, I took a few gigs from this type of development companies. And all they were prompting me for was, can we sell another dev team? Can you write more tickets for the devs and so on? But it was not so much about what's our OKR, what, what is success? Uh, what what can we do for the business and for the user? Um, both preferably for both, right? Because otherwise you you're not that successful. So so that was more the gist of the the company. Well, what what if we can have something with the prestige of the big consulting firms focused on product management, who seems to have an incentive problem if it's based placed elsewhere, and also focus on companies that want to do product management. Uh, in a more modern way where product is responsible for business side and results, not not just necessarily um, simple delivery or simple following orders, because then that's not very valuable, right, on, on its own. So that's that's the the intro to, to the company and it, it was how it all came together. We were still at the height of the funding cycle right before everything stopped when the interest rates uh, went up in oh. March 2022 right yeah uh, so yeah. so it all came together very well and uh, in in the european tech scene vcs were also pushing for more product management because if if you retain the users and if you create growth loops and all of that then you're going to pay less on google ads uh, and and all the sort so the the value of this function as as being a high leverage of, upon the business became more and more clear. So that that also helped us get into some organizations. Aside from the good word that we got, that more and more people were seeing the value of this function, and it it didn't get that much representation elsewhere. And Morella, your your story so far. Uh represents, you know, that famous quote, necessity is the mother of invention. And you saw that with your parents, uh, yeah. out of necessity, they had to start their own business. You saw an opportunity in the market that needed something and it helped create uh, product people and the growth that you've seen today. Now you're the founder and CPO of product people, this growing product staffing company for companies who need to temporarily fill headcount with product-led growth expertise. So tell us about the early days of the company's founding, some of the, the areas you focused on at the beginning and, and the success that it's had so far, including your recent Amsterdam event. I'd love to hear about that. So we, we grew headcount from our first employee who joined in 2020 to about 50 people right now. Wow. The highest growth was up until 2022. So 2023, as you know, with the downturn, it was a year where we stabilized. So we decided to not let go of people, but we also didn't grow headcount. Early days, it, it was literally doing everything because I, I started on my own. Then we had Victoria, uh, our first employee, who's now also our VP of product. Okay. 
And it was me doing client-facing work, doing client acquisition, doing recruiting, uh, running our community events. So all of these right now have a separate function. But back then, it, it was more of um, doing the client work, but then in the meantime, doing the company work. And I had a point where my team forced me to step out of some of the client work. And I'm, I'm very grateful for my internal leadership team that they did because that that kept uh, my focus away from the company and I didn't realize that because it's so easy to go into something you know rather than mm -hmm. something you don't know and fail at that <laughs> and do it miserably for a while yep uh, probably you've made a lot of these mistakes that when you read the thought leadership about building a company a lot of companies do right we didn't hire for the right culture fit or people that were really interested in what we wanted to offer and we weren't very strict of saying no because back then it was very hard to attract talent when you're a small yeah. company, you don't have VC funding or anything buzzing. It's like, oh, we're an agency. And people are like, oh, I hate agencies. You know, agencies are bad. So that that wasn't very easy. So I had to do a lot of direct outreach and trying to convince candidates and so on. Things became easier the more we grew with our brand. And also when we became a bit stricter, with uh, what's a good fit for us or not. So for example, if we have a candidate that negotiates over and over again and doesn't seem that interested in the company, but just like wants to top up their salary and, and goes into some infinite discussion about this. Back in the days we would have like felt bad about ourselves and it's like, oh, we're not paying like Google. Then it means we're not, we're, we're going to fail. And now it's like, yeah, we don't pay like Google because we're, um, a small boutique consultancy and yep. what we can pay is capped by the rates we can charge our clients since we can't charge the rates of the big consulting firms of McKinsey, BCG, Bain, who are the only ones who pay in line with Google, Meta and so on, then we cannot pay with them. And if someone wants to go to one of these companies, they're very welcome to, and they should know what they come to us for and what they should go to these other companies. And we did lose one of our employees to one of the big consulting firms. And I think that's okay. It shows that we discovered talent earlier than the larger players did. Um, but of course, it it wasn't that good uh, back then when it happened, especially as we were severely understaffed. Uh, but it's all these small things. So for a while, recruiting was a, one of the largest pain points when the market died down a bit. Obviously, client acquisition became a, a stronger pain point because up until that moment, all the demand we had was inbound and referrals and, and so on as everyone has a lot of money to spend everyone needed to to do everything asap and who else to better organize that than a product manager so everything worked very well we we neglected any outbound sales it's like oh no 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 these traditional methods don't work for us we are so amazing then clients just knock at our door and beg us to start uh, asap and, and then when the market went down, we weren't prepared with any of the internal processes for sales and also weren't capable of attracting B2B sales candidates because we were a bit, um, how can I say, we were a bit stubborn with that. <laughs> and, and of course, if you listen to the VC podcast, they're going to have the same narratives. It's like, yeah, technical founders always underestimate sales and then they yeah. they realize too late yep. how 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 important demand generation in any way it is. And you can't have only inbound um, because 
inbound will just like maintain the bottom line, but doesn't help you grow. You need to do like a lot of other efforts. I, I think those were the the biggest mistakes to date, right? Uh, underestimating recruiting and underestimating sales. But I, I don't know any founder who, who hasn't done mistakes in any of these areas. Yeah. Amarela, you I mean, you talked about wearing all the hats at the beginning. Uh, basically, you are uh, the captain uh, and and player of each department because it's just you and, and maybe you have someone helping you out along yeah. the way. Then you talk about uh, the re- staffing, resourcing um, for your company, so finding the right people, and that's uh, an imperfect science to say the least. Uh, and then you talked about shifting market dynamics that uh-huh. uh, some of them you can forecast, some of them you cannot uh, and you don't know the second and third order effects of some of those changes on your business and your your client's business. And so trying to manage through that is is always pretty interesting. But you've you've weathered the storm. It sounded like you took some prudent steps and not overstaffing and and looking at it from a you know both a business P and L perspective, uh, but also you know making sure you're uh, delivering value to your customers and not letting the customer experience suffer in any way, which is yeah. Awesome. Um, so really cool story. And, uh, you know, as you uh, probably hear the same things I do, it sounds and feels like things are starting to turn a corner a little bit in terms of uh, growth in the tech sector. Again, uh, part of that's driven by uh, the rise of AI and, and all that sort of stuff. But um I know we're we're trying to wrap things up, and I think John's John's got a, a question to throw at you. Yeah. So, Morella, at the end of our show, we always like to ask our guests, you know, a question of advice for those of those people listening that want to either just, you know, figure out their way forward or follow in your footsteps. But we have a lot of listeners who are contemplating just getting started in their second act journey. So what final thoughts or advice would you want to leave our audience um, that would help them increase the success of their personal journey? Probably understand what would be a major regret for you. You know, if, okay. if you think of yourself from 20 years from now on, what what would you be really annoyed if you didn't do or attempt? Oh, that's good. And let, let's say it's founding a company because I hear this from from a lot of people. And and then if you go for that, try to also map how would you how would you do it? How much time do you invest? Do you have enough of a personal runway to to carry this for a year or two? Because it it may not work out from the beginning. And fortunately, there are also a few resources. Like two of our seniors quit last year after a sabbatical, uh, going into one of these entrepreneurship programs. One is from Antler. There's another one from Entrepreneur First. Uh, where you basically can come in with no uh, no idea and you do co-founder matching and a lot of fast iterations of trying to find some people and an idea to work with. So there are a lot of things that can help you get started. Uh, Michael yeah. mentioned also Techstars in, in the intro. That's when you already have a company and you want to accelerate or do some things better. Uh, so, so there are a lot of programs and options to support you, but think from a personal perspective. The other part is also some people want to be an entrepreneur, but more f- because they don't know what this is and may not even be a fit with their personality. 
And I also had some moments during my journey where I felt everything was falling apart and I, and I was so overworked and it just felt that the people in leadership positions at our corporate clients had it so well. And I sure. used to go to, to my partner and say, you know, I could just give up and be a director or a VP at X. And, and then, you know, they're asking people about their work-life balance where I'm drowning here in everything. And, and they all seem to be like so clueless. Cause of course I also didn't see like all, all the things that they were dealing with. Right. So my, from my perspective, yeah. there was this VP or director person that seemed very fluffy puffy while I was drowning in everything. And then my life partner said, yes, but they're going to be there for the next year. And. And it's very unlikely that they'll be able to move up because in this corporate, then the, the opportunities get very thin. Whereas you have this option to, to double or triple or so on the company. And, mm -hmm. and that was like such a, such a good call shower, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, you're jealous of them, but they're going to stay there. So if you want to plateau, yeah, go and exit to corporate and have like the fancy title and be invited to speak at conferences or in whatever. Cause you know that, uh, but you, you're not going to make it m much further there. Yeah. Um, and, and another good advice is maybe be more okay with when things are n not, um, changing for the better. So, so wow. there, there was a, a point where I was complaining. I was like, no, I'm going to do this and things will get better. Or I'm going to do this, that, and things will get better. But there are some things that just don't get better. People will quit your company. And no matter how well you do, you'll always have some attrition rate or you always have some yep. parts of unhappiness. Then the, um, the goal is to kind of minimize or understand which is an acceptable failure percentage yep. and, and yep. not try to fix everything because... There are some things that are just always going to have some areas of improvement and you want to understand what's good and what's normal there. So that, that was also a realization I came to later, whereas I would see each person quitting my company as a personal failure. Whereas right now it's like, well, but they have other life plans or there was this company that just doubled their salary. Like I would do that as well, right? If I, <laughs> if I would have been an employee, like who, yeah. there would be very few cases where someone wouldn't. So, yeah, maybe this is something for founders, like take things less personally. It sounds so trite, but in, initially for me in the early days, it felt like everything is a personal mistake. Whereas yeah. now it's like, yeah, this, this person is moving on because uh, they want more work-life balance or they want to, to work on just mobility or just health tech. And we can't offer them that because we have a variety of domains. That's perfectly fine. And it seems like a reasonable life choice that they've understood for themselves, right? They're not quitting for random reasons. Yeah. That's great advice to end on, Morella. And I think as people think about their second act um, or entrepreneurship or starting something new, it doesn't mean that you can't go back to what you're familiar and comfortable with at some point. If you If you travel that road, and it doesn't work out for one reason or another, it's not typically a fatal mistake. It's just you've you've opened and closed that chapter in your life, and now you're moved on to the next chapter, which could be revisiting the earlier part of your sort of life narrative. Yeah. And it's just it's been such a pleasure talking to you from Berlin today, Marella, and I, I know it's getting late on your side of the world, so I, I wanted to transition us into the 
into wrapping up this show. Um, but our audience is going to love your story. And Absolutely. there's there's many listeners out there who want to get in touch uh, and learn more about the things you're working on. I've got a fairly decent sized product network. I, I know you do being a LinkedIn top voice. So what's the best way for our audience to find you? Email LinkedIn. I'm, I'm pretty findable on those. So my email is uh, mirola.moose at getproductpeople.com. Okay. I'm probably more reliable to respond there. Uh, also, LinkedIn DMs work, but sometimes I may get too many too fast and then they just kind of get buried <laughs> under all the um, automation marketing spam or, you know, like whatever everyone yep. gets. So up, up, up to you. But I'm always happy to get questions or, or feedback. And thank you, Michael and John, for this amazing podcast and the great questions you put together. Well, Morella, it's been such a pleasure having you on and, and from Germany, and, and I appreciate your willingness to, to be on the show with us and just impart to us, me especially, and our listeners, the, you know, the, the road that you've traveled to get where you are and still to have a level head and know, you know, the, the problems that you're facing and to be relatable to the people that you're hiring and know that it's not always going to work out for, for those individuals, but the culture is incredibly important. Um, so I love that you're still grounded in that. And, and I just want to wish you all the best and we'll make sure that we, we include your links in the episode notes and so people can get a hold of you. But just, I personally want to say thank you for all the time and, and, uh, that you've put on here on the show and for, for allowing us to dig in a little bit deeper into your story. Yeah, thanks so much, Marilla. Amazing. All so, right. Michael, awesome, awesome episode. Thank you so yes. much for finding Marella and getting her on for us. And we look forward to reconnecting with our audience and with everyone else in this next week. So we'll see you all later. See ya. The second act with Michael and John stars Michael Newborn and John Ballinger. The podcast is produced by Seltzer Kings. For more information on the show, check out michaelandjohn.com. Or if you'd like to get involved in the conversation, give the guys a shout on their socials at The Second Act with Michael and John on most platforms. Thanks for listening. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.